What's going on? <clears throat> Welcome to tonight's show. Let's just dive right into it. We are talking about Halloween. Halloween. Yes, it is my favorite holiday. Well, I love Thanksgiving and I love Christmas too. But Halloween has a special place in my heart for many reasons. It's that holiday where you can basically be whoever you want to be. You can lose yourself and, you know, be something, be something else, dress up in a certain way um, that you don't, maybe, maybe you, you, you don't have the gumption to dress in a ridiculous fashion for the other 364 days of the year or whatever. I, you know, I, by the way, Halloween happens on the 31st, but I think it should happen on the last Saturday of October. All Halloween should be on the last Saturday of October. Just the way that um, Thanksgiving is on a Thursday, the last Thursday of November. We should always have Halloween on a Saturday if if Halloween is not made a federal holiday. However, I love the idea of like a Halloween weekend. Sunday should always be Samhain. Um, Friday night should always be Devil's Night. And Halloween should be on Saturday. Yeah. Who wants that? Let's start a petition. That's what I would do if I ran the zoo. I'll tell you what. But um, we did a we did a really fun episode talking about the origins of like Christmas, like Amer- the Americanization of Christmas, like Christmas rituals, like how everything like folds together. I love history like that, you know. And Halloween is very much like Christmas in that same kind of way. I mean, most. Most holidays fall on like solstices or take a bunch of different things and fold them together. Lots of pagan traditions get folded into, you know, more modern Christianized holidays and become their own thing. And Halloween is just like a a melting pot of so many really cool things. So let's just let's just dive right into it. OK, we're going to dive right into it. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to start with uh, a timeline of Halloween history. So let's do that. I, You know, I'm curious. Let's see if they mentioned. I want to see if they mentioned Robert Burns. Robert Burns was a poet. Yeah, here it is. Great, great, great. So we'll be able to fold that into that into that. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. You can tell. I've had my caffeine. I have not had any caffeine because tomorrow I have to wake up really early and we're going to share the screen. So this is from something called Stacker. I'm not super familiar with Stacker, but um, when I was doing my research and putting together uh, stuff for this for this, uh, for this show... I came across this and I thought this was a really nice way to sort of organize all the information. So this is written by uh, Rachel Kavanaugh uh, from October 17th, 2020 on stacker 
Halloween.com. A timeline of Halloween history. In the modern era, wow, way to mess up that line. In the modern era, Halloween has become synonymous with bags of candy and children running through the streets in costumes. But it hasn't always been that way. Once upon a time, Halloween was a serious time dedicated to frightening away ghosts and spirits. It originated more than 2,000 years ago with the ancient Celts who believed that the transition from autumn to winter unsheared in spirits of the dead. Their theory was that the darkness and the cold made it easier for uh, Osai, I don't know, Osi, supernatural fairies and deceased souls to cross over between worlds. That's like deeply and profoundly spiritual to me. I think that's like a beautiful thing um you definitely there is an electricity in the air around that time it is it's the smell of burning of of dead leaves on the wind and just like the crispness of the as the temperature drops on top of this it was harvest season and the celtic new year so the combination of wanting to celebrate and also ward off spirits birthed a festival known as Sam Hain, but it's pronounced Samhain. And of course, if you're a fan of the band Sam Hain, uh, you'll have nerds coming up to you all day going, actually, it's pronounced Samhain. <laughs> Samhain is how you pronounce that. For those of you who are unaware and uninformed, you're actually saying it wrong. It's Samhain, not Sam Hain. Hate that shit. Whatever. Sam Hain, it's fine. During Sam Hain, celebrants wore masks and built large bonfires to scare away ghosts. Now picture this. Imagine the sun dips down and amongst the, the bogs and the fields in, you know, the Celtic plains, wherever that is, somewhere in the United Kingdom and I guess over by Ireland, you have uh, groups of people dancing around giant orange bonfires. And those are the only, besides, you know, if it's a full moon or not, that's the only source of light. And that's not all that was happening. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so they, they, they wore masks and built large bonfires to scare away ghosts. People also went door to door offering prayers in exchange for small breads called soul cakes. As, so there's your, that's the origin. There's the origin of trick or treating right there. You go to door to door offering prayer, prayers in exchange for small breads called soul cakes, soul cakes. And then we now have the modern version of trick or treating. We dress up like the ghouls and the goblins and whatever. And we go door to door. And depending on how you bless us with either candy or no candy, we might, we, we might trick you. And throw eggs at your house. What's up, mom? Mom says, hey, Jeff, what an awesome topic. Yeah, I figured this was like a no brainer after doing the history of Christmas. By the way, if you have not, if you want to know all about the history of Christmas, go watch that episode on the channel. It's great. It's great. It's good. It's good. Um, As Christianity spilled into Celtic lands, the church picked up some of these rituals, combining them with its own. And that is literally the theme of every single holiday tradition whatever you want to call it um christianity spread all over the world and the church would incorporate pagan rituals into its own customs as a means it's i think you know it was kind of like a boon to these pagans who were may have been converting to christianity or where they wanted to make christianity seem more um uh, appealing 
New and different versions of Sam Hain spread throughout the region. I love that name too, Sam Hain. What a cool name. Uh, so new and different versions of Sam Hain spread throughout the region. And when Europeans began immigrating to the Americas in the 17th century, they brought their festivals with them. Two centuries later, the spread of the holiday progressed even further when immigrants with Celtic roots arrived after fleeing the Irish potato famine. And just a small correction, you know, we we in our history books, it's often said that, yeah, that there was a potato famine that 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 was a blight to Ireland. And that's not true entirely. What really happened was that there was a blight, but all of the food that was harvested um, was taken from the Irish farmers themselves and they starved to death. So what the the Irish potato famine is basically a polite way of saying we are locating whatever resources are available uh, or resources there are, and you're going to starve to death. And that's kind of like what happened. I, You know, that's a very, very generalized sort of like explanation. It's probably way more nuanced and detailed. If you want to read more about it, feel free. That's just me speaking off the top of my dome. In uh, in the 20th set, but, you know, call a spade a spade. There's no Irish potato famine. There was no famine. There was there was food. It was just the food did, wasn't it wasn't given to people. That's the problem. Uh, unfortunately, um, there was there was there was blight. There was there was uh, the, there there was a, a death of the crops. But, you know, resources were were from what I've recently read, from my understanding, from my recent enlightenment about this was that you know that there was there was food it was just not given to certain people and they died a horrible way to die you know um in the 20th century particularly after world war ii the celebration which had by then become halloween or all hallows eve began to look more and more like the holiday we know today Businesses seized the opportunity to sell things like costumes and decorations. And ultimately, Halloween morphed into a commercial holiday. And, you know, some people might say the commercialization of holidays is gross and disgusting because it ultimately, you know, becomes about capitalism. But there are bright, there's like positives to the commercialization of holidays too, because you get really cool stuff like, you know, that's how you get Halloween candy and that's how you get cool looking costumes. And that's how you get, you know, um, Halloween TV specials on, on all your favorite shows. That's part of that commercialization. So while there are bad things about commercialization, there's also some like, you know, silver linings there a little bit, uh, when it comes to holidays, at least in that kind of way. Um, and some would argue, well, it cheapens the holiday, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's all like when, when Dunkin' Donuts coming out with like a Halloween themed donut, like that to me is fun. There's nothing wrong with that. In 2019, 172 million Americans celebrated the holiday with the average consumer spending upwards of $86 and 27 cents, according to the National Retail Federation with COVID-19. Oh, why did I say that word out loud? Safety measures. They love to bury those videos. Safety measures like social distancing in place. Fewer people going trick-or-treating this year. But 58% of Americans still plan to celebrate. This is from 2020. Still plan to celebrate the holiday in some way. And average spending is actually up to $92.12. 
to honor this spooky hollow uh, to honor this spooky holiday stacker has put together a timeline that offers more details on the history of halloween beginning 2000 years ago with sam hain and ending in present times take a look and learn more about the roots of this ghoulish festivity now now we're going to look at this timeline but then what we're going to do is we're going to pull up our magnifying glass and we're going to look even closer and the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at how Halloween has transformed over the 20th century because Halloween, as we really, really know it, is transformed in the 20th century to become what it is. That's where everything really changes. Um, let's let's start here. So first, here are some of those bonfires. This is obviously stock footage, but there's an example of a bonfire. So this is from 50 BC before Christ to 50 AD after death. So for uh, about a hundred years, 50 of them before Christ and 50 of them after, we have the the the, the beginnings of Samhain. Roughly 2,000 years ago, the ancient Celts began celebrating Samhain to scare away the spirits. They associated the seasonal tra uh, transition with darkness, cold, and death. The Halloween colors, orange and black, can be traced back to this time when black was associated with death and orange symbolized the fall harvest. But let's break it down. Let's make it even simpler than that. How about this? It's just simply orange bonfire against black sky. There you go. That's Halloween. Isn't that, Isn't that cool when you think about it? Look at this painting. This is uh, a woman giving a man uh, an orange. This is like trick-or-treating, right? So this is 43 to 84 AD. Isn't that trippy? Could you imagine living within the first 100 years of Christ? Like, it's just crazy to me. So Romans merge their traditions. Um, as the Romans overtook the Celts between 43 AD and 84 AD, two of the conquerors' previous holidays merged with Samhain. That's crazy. The first one is called uh, Feralia, uh, which was a late October festival honoring the dead, while the second was an ode to Pomona, the goddess of fruit. Pomona's symbol was the apple, and this Roman festival is one of several theories about the origin of bobbing for apples. What? That is so cool, man. And then, you know, Different cultures may do things differently, but ultimately thematically do similar stuff. So the idea of a festival honoring the dead, that is that happens all over the place. So it's like, oh, you honor the dead, we honor the dead. Let's smack them together. And then you know, you get stuff like this. You get stuff like this. Cool. All right. So here's a here's some sort of Pope dude with a crucifix and a knife in his Bible, I guess. This is 609 AD, Pope uh Benefice. Is that how you say it? Boniface? Boniface. Pope Boniface IV establishes All Martyrs Day on May 13th. In 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV established the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day when he dedicated the Pantheon to Christian martyrs uh, declaring an annual holiday on May 13th. The holiday later came to be known as All Saints Day or All Hallows Day. So that's where you get, you have All Hallows Day, and that's November 1st, right? So All Hallows Eve would be October 31st. There you go. So the, so Saints and Hallows, let's see what it says about Hallows. Let's look up the definition 
of the word hollows because it must be comparable to the word saints, right? Hollow, uh, honor as in holy. Got it. Got it. Get it. So it's like all holy day, uh, which is the same as saints. Saints are holy as well. Interesting. Interesting comparison there. Um, and then we have a, uh, these all look like just like saint, saintly people or something. So 731 to 41. So for, this is 10 years. Pope Gregory III moves the celebration to November 1st. Although the exact year remains unknown. Okay, so they don't actually know. Within these 10 years, between 731 and 741, Pope Gregory III moves this, this tradition uh, celebration to November 1st. Although the exact year remains unknown. At some, at some time during Pope Gregory III's 10-year reign, he dedicated a chapel in the Basilia of St. Peter to honor the saints. When he did this, he moved All Saints Day from May to November 1st, and it began blending with the other autumnal celebrations honoring the dead. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Look at this. This is beautiful. This reminds me of Sleepy Hollow, which is, I live right next to Sleepy Hollow. It's a place we go often uh, around uh, that, that time of year. Um, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, eight thirty-seven. Pope Gregory the Fourth orders observance of the holiday. It's amazing how the popes put things into um, uh, what's it called? Not ordinance. That's not what I'm. Uh, they 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 made things policy. Right, policy is the word. These these popes they would they would declare things as policy. In eight thirty-seven, Pope Gregory the Fourth ordered the general observance of All Saints Day. According to the Jehovah's Witnesses online library watchtower, the move was in line with the church's policy of absorbing of absorbing and Christianizing the customs of the converts rather than abolishing them. So here again, as we said, this is always at the center of assimilation, right? We're not going to abolish necessarily, or at least this is Christian assimilation, I should say. We're not going to abolish your customs just because they're not our own. We're going to adopt them and absorb them into what we do and Christianize them so that you will be stoked about that, more stoked about everything. Um, so by absorbing and Christianizing the customs of the converts rather than abolishing them uh, in a single stroke of, uh, I can't pronounce that word. Ecclesiastical—it's like eclectic, ecclesiastical diplom diplomacy, uh, a totally pagan festival with all of its paraphernalia intact, was married to the church's own centuries-old pagan worship of the dead. So the church had pagan worship already in the church that was centuries old and they're just keep they just keep adding stuff they just keep adding stuff to the church's official policy um but it's funny how these things that are not christian at all become christian and ever since the odd couple halloween and all saints day have inseparably stuck together hmm that is that is interesting right a uh, thousand AD, the church declares November 2nd to be all souls day. So you have Halloween or all hallows Eve. Then you have uh, all saints day. And then you have all souls day by turn, by the turn of the first millennium, Christian influence on the holiday had become widespread 
And the church declared the following day, November 2nd, as All Souls Day in honor of the dead. According to History.com, it is widely believed today that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead with a related church-sanctioned holiday. So in this way, we are they are, you know, um, what's it called? Purging. They're purging pagan, some pagan, uh, some pagan stuff in that kind of way. Look at this beautiful face paint. I love the Dia de los Muertos face paint. It's just, it's gorgeous to me. This, this tradition of wearing skulls with the spiders. It's just beautiful to me. I love it. I absolutely love it. Keith is in the house and Keith says Easter is also a pagan holiday that got Christianized. Yes. That's where the eggs and the rabbits come from. Rabbits are all about, you know, banging and, you know, represent fertility. And then yes, and then uh, Jesus uh, was resurrected. That's about rebirth. It, they, they, they. It all blends together. Plus the the May Day, which is the 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 spring solstice. It all comes together. Mom Longoria says. Longoria says basically why Mexicans Hispanics have uh, Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead. Yes, yes. And we get beautiful art like this. I just love it. Um, this is from the 1300s to the 1500s. So this is separately. So while all that is going on on the other side of the world in South America, where the Aztec empire is at its height, um, Aztecs begin celebrating Dia de los Muertos. Actually, there was a really great um, Marvel Zombies comic where the Aztec empire never fell. And basically, instead of America, you had the Aztec empire. And instead of Captain America, you had Captain Aztec. And I thought that was really, really cool. Really captured my imagination. So this is, so so the Aztecs begin celebrating Dia de los Muertos. Isn't that amazing how, you know, uh, Mexico, which is predominantly a Christian and Catholic sort of like country, right? Like on, on some level, um, that, they, uh, that they do Dia de los Muertos, but it actually is an Aztec thing which relates to the the paganistic, you know, qualities of Aztecs because they didn't believe in Christianity. I mean, eventually they, well, that's that's all side of history that I am not super familiar with. So I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about when I speak about it. I need to read up more on the subject. As the three days of spirited celebration, All Hallows Eve, which is October 31st, All Hallows Day, which is November 1st, and All Souls Day, which is November 2nd, uh, continue gaining popularity in Europe. The Aztecs in Mexico, meanwhile, sorry, they were in Mexico. Um, my bad. I was saying that they were in South America. They're in Mexico. I, Mexico's part of Central America. Um, meanwhile, began, see, I don't know everything. Meanwhile, began performing rituals of their own honoring the dead. These would later evolve into Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, a holiday that's merged in recent years with Halloween in some parts of Mexico in the United States. And if you've ever seen the movie Coco, they just do a one, Pixar does a wonderful job of celebrating these traditions. This is when Disney really nails the mark for me. You know, there's some like, um, I know that Disney is like, you know, people lambast Disney for being woke. And I hate using that word woke. I really, really hate it. Um, But one thing that Disney uh, does do that I really like is that they like try to tell stories around like cultures that we may not know about. And in that way, they're kind of like they're 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 elevating. They're elevating these things that don't normally get elevated. So it's kind of cool to learn. I mean, if my 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 children know about Dia de los Muertos and they know about the Day of the Dead and 
how um, it's it's like a it's essentially a festival of the dead celebrating our dead loved ones, and the, they know about the ofrenda and they know about the alabrije and all of this stuff because of Coco. You know what I'm saying? So that's pretty cool. That's I, that's that's one thing I tip my hat to, like Pixar, Disney, all that sort of stuff. It's pretty cool. So um, so so yeah, it's it's merged in recent years with Halloween in certain parts of Mexico and the United States. Today, instead of saying trick or treat, Mexican children ask for candy by saying "me uh, me calaverita," which means "can you give me." I love that. Can you give me my little skull? Why doesn't Glenn Danzig write a song about this, man? Why doesn't Glenn Danzig write a song about this? Like a beautiful acoustic ballad. Mexican children asking for candy by saying, uh, me calaverita. Sorry, there's my gringo, my gringo frenetic pronunciation of Spanish. Sorry. Um, me calaverita which means can you give me my little skull i love that i love that i'm learning so much right now uh what's this this is some people gathered around by a fire probably telling stories 1600s settlers bring halloween to north america and this is also where you know this is this is the time when washington irving this eventually about a century later washington irving you know, he writes uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, one of our great folk tales of, of Halloween. You know, it's f- phenomenal. Um, by the 1600s, all Hallow's Day festivals had become fairly well established in Europe. When settlers began arriving in North America, they brought the holiday with them. Uh, as these traditions merged with the American Indian customs, we'll say Native Americans. I did not mean to say American Indian. Native American and indigenous customs like the oral storytelling, plays, skits, and ghost stories. So isn't that amazing how the Native Americans had these ghost stories, skits, you know, probably stuff that you tell around a fire to entertain. And that gets weaved into the mythology of, of this stuff being brought over, which in turn was, you know, absorbed by the Christian church, which in turn comes from uh, Sam Hain. It's just, it's amazing when you trace it all back. Um, so oral storytelling comes about plays, skits, ghost stories, fortune telling, dancing, and other types of performance art were incorporated into the festivities. Pictured illustration to Robert Burns' poem, Halloween, by J.M. Wright and Edgar and Edward Shriven. So this is, so here, right here, and this is important. Notice it says Halloween, and ween has a little apostrophe between the two E's, Halloween. Um, And this poem is, I guess, the modern, this is like the, I think this is the first time that Halloween is used. Or something like that. Let's see what the history is behind it. I'm going to read it for you guys right now. Well, it's really long, actually. <laughs> um, all right, let's go for it. This poem is in the public domain. Cool. It's beautiful, man. So this is by Robert Burns, 1759. Let, let's see here uh, real quick. Uh, man, I just want to I just want to get Robert Burns poem Halloween. Let's see what it says. Um, Halloween is a poem written by the Scottish poet Robert Burns in 1785, first published in 1786. The poem is included in the 
Kill Murnock edition. It is one of Burns' longer poems with 28 stanzas and employs a mixture of Scots and English. But there's more to it than just that. Um, there's that famous picture again, background. There's something that it does, like it establishes the the, the name of Halloween. The poem, having 12 stanzas, makes notes. It just basically like describes the holiday of Halloween. And I think, don't quote me on this. Let's see. When is Halloween first used? Let's see that. Um, It doesn't. No, no, no. That's not what we want. We want to know when the name. When did the name Halloween first come about? Uh, the word Halloween or Halloween dates to about 1745 and is of Christian origin. The word Halloween means saints evening. Right, because you have hollow and you have een as in evening. It comes from a Scottish term for all hollows eve. So that then gets written into this poem. And this is like an iconic poem by uh, Robert Burns. So let's let's take a look at it real, real quick. Real, real quick. We're going to take a look at this. I just need to share the screen. Real, real quick. We're going to take a look at this. I just need to share the screen. We're going to share the screen as we read this poem. Where is... There it is. Okay. Um, blah, 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 blah. All right. This is Halloween by Robert Burns. Upon that night when fairies light on Cassilis Dowen's dance or o'er the lays in splendid blaze on sprightly courses prance. Or for Colleen, the root is tain. Oh, this is, I cannot. Beneath the pale moon's beams, there up the cove to stray and rove among the rocks and streams to sport the night. It's beautiful language. Um, among the bonny wind winding banks where dune rins wimplin' clear, where Bruce ants ruled the marital ranks and shook his carrick spear, some merry, friendly country folks together did convene to burn their nits and pow their stocks and haud their Halloween. Fooblith the night, the lasses' feet and cleanly neat, mere bra that when they're fine, their faces blithe, flew sweetly kithe, hearts leal and warm and kin. The lads say trig, we wooers babs. Wheel nodded on their garden, some uncle blate and some Y gabs, garlasses hearts, gang startin, whilst fast at night. Then first and foremost through the kale, their stocks moon ah sought ants, their steek thy een. I you know I'm butchering this language. I guys, I feel terrible reading this and like butchering this beautiful poem. <laughs> It's really long. <laughs> I'm gonna stop. I just feel bad. I just feel like I'm, we're not getting the the full enriched. Just go look it up. Here, I'm putting it in the the. I'm putting the link in the chat for whoever comes back to this. Let's move on. I'm sorry. That was. I just don't feel good reading it. I, I feel like I'm butchering it and not doing it justice, the justice that it deserves. Let's actually take a very quick sponsor break. 
to tell you about riotstickers.com riot stickers we have the bomb if you need stickers make sure to head over riotstickers.com the official sponsor of the frumus uh channel here look at these stickers that they put up Whoop, that's upside down right there um they did this beautiful banner behind me we're running a contest with riotstickers.com just go to riotstickers.com backslash win and enter it's free to enter and if you win the raffle when if you're selected you get 20 free custom shirts with any design that you want on the um on the uh the on a shirt and there's free shipping and uh we also have a special deal going with bride stickers use the promo code from us for it it's down in the comments you get 50% off uh i think it's i forget how many stickers it is it's been a while since i've said that uh archduke ramon says i love this subject matter that's awesome i'm glad to hear that uh brian's here from let's talk live how you doing brian he says it feels like the fall lately with the weather we've been experiencing lately in the northeast i agree i'm also in the northeast brian and it's just been it's been bad man it's just really 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 frustrating um so let me play you the little video from riotstickers.com and like i said uh, if you go down into the into the into the description below, you will find the special link to get the special deal for riot, for riot stickers for stickers using the promo code from us. So here we go. Hi, I'm a guy from riotstickers.com, the merch company known for being the bomb. Do you hate going to work, but like getting paid? Do you hate snow, but want to make sweet, sweet love to a snowman? That was unexpected. All right, what about this? Do you hate paying for stuff, but like having custom t-shirts? You are in luck. We can't help with the snowman thing. That's probably going to take a therapist, but riotstickers.com is giving you a chance to win a free order of custom shirts. And entering is easier than like making sweet, sweet Get her out of here. <clears throat> All you have to do is simply go to riotstickers.com slash win and enter your name and email address. Riot Stickers will have a random drawing to pick a winner. So head to riotstickers.com slash win for your chance to win free custom shirts. And be sure to check out other custom merch while you're there because it is the bomb. Riot Stickers.com, Riot Stickers, we are the bomb. And there you have it, folks. Yeah, sorry about me butchering that um that poem. I just wasn't doing it justice. So let let's get back let's get back to the history here. So now here we are. Look, here's a witch riding a broom, and cats and witches and broomsticks and cats are all black cats are all associated with Halloween. So here's why that is in um in the sixteen from sixteen twenty to the sixteen nineties, pilgrim fear of witches popularizes the black cat symbol. So pilgrims, pilgrims are the, uh, the Christians who uh, wanted religious freedom to practice their religion their way. So they, they came over to the Americas and they were afraid of witches and black cats. Black cats have been considered a symbol of the devil in the middle ages. And before that, they were associated with the spirits and the gods by the Egyptians. European witch trials in the 16th century brought with them the presumption that those practicing witchcraft could turn into cats. At the time, some of those accused of witchcraft had also had alley cats that had been taken in as pets. Um, it's a shame that Chris Corkum is not with us. Rest in peace, Chris Corkum, because he lived in Salem and I'm sure he could tell us a lot about it. <clears throat> that paranoia traveled to the new world with the pilgrims. 
Uh, the Salem witch trials of 1692 and 1693 happened as a result. Uh, today, cats are depicted next to witches in Halloween decor and popular costumes. And as Jody Ramon says down here, salt the dead, you close the veil, da -da 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 -da, the change of shapes is alone on hooves. Autumn comes and brings the pagan dead. Who seek the warmth of the sideway fire? Da -da -da -da. Do you want a paradise? Do you want a sacrifice? This is the night to feast and die. But this is the night to laugh at death. Bum. Bum. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Brian. That's right. The Salem, the Salem witch trials indeed. All right. Sorry. Move. <laughs> sorry. I don't know what came over me. <laughs> All right. So look. So now we have the jack-o'-lanterns. Ooh, 1800s. The Irish legend of Stingy Jack prompts pumpkin carving, but it wasn't originally pumpkins. It was something else. It was turnips. And that dated back to like the Celtic tradition. Whatever, I'm getting ahead of myself. In the 19th century, the Irish started carving turnips in response to the legend of Stingy Jack, a man who was condemned to walk the earth for eternity after a bungled ploy with the devil. The turnips, which bore scary faces, were set aside, were set outside homes to frighten Jack away. When the potato famine, we already talked about the potato, the potato famine and why it's not really so much a famine, uh, which you can go Google more about that. Go check that out. Um, but when uh, when the potato starvation uh, drove um, drove the Irish to head to America, the immigrants brought the tradition with them, which ultimately became pumpkin carving. Hence the name Jacko Lantern. I just love learning about this stuff. And again, you know, and that's the beauty of, of merging, you know, pe people often we've talked about, we've railed against the idea of cultural appropriation and how cultural appropriation is bad and stuff, because that's how things like fuse together and melt together and like, you know, get adopted cultural appropriation. Uh, I don't think of it like that. I think of it as it's just a melting pot. You know what I mean? If, you know, you know, uh, uh, you have the merging, you have the emergence of rhythm and blues and country that make rock and roll. That's, you know, essentially what is considered to be black people's music and white people's music fusing together, right. To make this new thing. Um, I think where, what differentiates that from cultural appropriation, the idea of cultural appropriation is that you're profiting in some or benefiting in some way off of something else that belongs to someone who is marginalized. And I just think so many things get mislabeled as cultural appropriation. You know, you wouldn't, do, would you go to the Japanese subcultures that are like, you know, there's like Japanese, like uh, there's Japanese rockabillies and uh, uh, you know, sorry. Uh, yeah. Rockabilly subcultures. And uh, what else is it like uh, sort of like uh, the Latino lowrider subculture, all that stuff is in Japan. They all like they all do that stuff. They don't they, they they do it with respect and reverence for these things that they are fascinated by and love. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Plus, you know, if if you know, if we weren't allowed to adopt other people's customs, then you wouldn't get the, the Canadian rapper Snow doing that reggae song Informer. 
informal because to go boom boom yeah i mean that's you know there you go there you go so um but i love hearing about that so the irish bring over the jack-o-lantern we've so far how many components have we heard the pilgrims bring the witches and the black cats sort of thing the irish bring over the the jack-o-lantern we get the bobbing for apples comes from the 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 goddess of fruit from the Romans. It's, I mean, it's just, there's so much gets like mixed together. You know what I mean? Um, Archduke Ramon says Japan is huge with the grunge. Japan is huge with the grunge subculture. Yeah. You just, I mean, they, they, and that's the thing about the Japanese and in their culture, like whatever they do, they do it with great revenance and respect. So, you know, you wouldn't turn and point a finger to, Hey, that's cultural appropriation. It's like, no, you get this really cool new thing because of this, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I think it's beautiful, man. I, I think it's really beautiful. I mean, uh, take a look at like, like the, the, the second wave of ska in the late seventies, like really explodes out of England. And that is a result of, of sailors coming into the ports and bringing, you know, the first ska records. And then this new generation, getting obsessed and, you know, starting to play ska music, get all these ska bands, these wonderful madness and the specials and all that stuff comes out of that. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't understand cultural appropriation. Like, you know, I think it creates segregation personally in my, I think there are certain examples. There are certain rare, I mean, I think it's really subjective and there are individual examples that you could probably look at and say, yeah, maybe that's cultural appropriation because, you know, they benefited greatly. They took from this very little thing and then commercialized it in a big, bad way uh, that sort of um, uh, took the genuine aspects of it and basically sold it for a dollar. That, I guess, you would kind of look at as like, and I'm trying to think of an example of that off the top of my head. But um, I, I think that it's more beautiful when, you know, you get, I mean, look at food. I think food is the greatest example of this. You know what happens? You get like some Vietnam, like Vietnamese population lives in New Orleans. I just created that off the top of my head. I, I don't actually know if there's a Vietnamese population in New Orleans. I'm just saying you have stuff like that or like the German, no, the Dutch that, that come to Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. And you know what happens? All of a sudden you have like this Cajun, like the idea of like even Cajun cuisine. Cajun is, is the is the is the fusion of like french cooking with like haitian cooking i think i think it's haitian don't quote me on that i haven't done my research um my point is is that like you get these fusions cooking fusing together because of two populations or a population going into another environment and taking what they know from their country and using local ingredients and and creating something i think it's beautiful man and and halloween is like the like such a cool example of this stuff that we are talking about. Archduke Ramon agrees with me. Uh, Brian says, and hardcore music. Robbie says, Robbie Bloodshed says, absolutely creates segregation. Brian says, it's just like how Americans are obsessed with Japanese culture, especially the, in the American or the America tattoo culture. Absolutely. 100% absolutely. Archduke Ramon says, when my kids who are part native went to school, the school quit allowing people 
to wear Indian outfits. Uh, and when you say Indian, do you mean like the, you mean like the native American outfits, like, like headdresses and stuff, ceremonial stuff like that. Um, don't want to make assumptions here. All right, let's keep moving on. Let's keep moving on. Ooh, look, a ghost under a sheet. So 1750s to 1850s, ghosts in burial shrouds form today's bedsheet ghosts. I love this. I love learning this. Okay, so he's saying, he's saying yes, native uh, ceremonial headdresses is what Archduke is referring to. Robbie Bloodshed says, Life would be so effing bland with the, without the mixture of cultures. It's an amazing thing. The mixture of all world's spices of life. Exactly, man. Exactly. And then you know what happens? You have, you have like peace, man. You have like love. You have like, like appreciation, you know? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Brian, for the support. Uh, by the way, Brian has a show called Let's Talk Live podcast. He has a channel. Go check it out. Go subscribe. I'm going to be on his show. We're going to be doing a Misfits Samhain Danzig appreciation show tentatively scheduled. I think we have a date on the calendar is May 15th. Um, And yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm honored that Brian has asked me to come on. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for that. So go check out his channel. Go look at some of his videos as well. All right. Anyway, back to our back to our thing here. 1750s to 1850s ghosts and burial shrouds form today's bedsheet ghosts. Between roughly the 1750s and the 1850s, artists began depicting ghosts as they appeared in their burial shrouds. Oh, oh my God! So the idea of a ghost is just really being under a burial shroud. Right. It's going to be, we're going to be talking at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Wow. I never even thought of that. I didn't put two and two together. So the ghost is, oh my God. So the white amorphous blob that is a ghost comes from the being under the burial shroud. That is crazy. As Natalie Shore wrote for the Daily Beast, this was a shift away from previous artistic or literary ghosts such as Hamlet's father or the ones who visited Ebenezer Scrooge in a Christmas carol. The white burial shrouds became associated with ghosts. One of the reasons why today's phantoms wear bedsheets, according to some theories. So it's literally a shroud. Yes. Um, Archduke, if you were here earlier, you, <laughs> you would hear my commentary on the pronunciation of Sam Hain, I'm not going to repeat it here. Just rewind a little bit and you will see what I have to say. Look at this. Okay, so you have people bobbing for apples and that dates back, you know, 2,000 years. We talked about that, the goddess of fruit from the Romans. People are telling stories, which comes from Native American traditions, right? And dancing and, and having fun. Uh, this looks like, you know, it's funny. This kind of, it says, it says the Irish potato famine here, but this looks like um, uh, people just, ha- uh, this looks like uh, Washington Irving, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, in terms of like what happened. I'm real quick. I am going to look up um, the real story behind the Irish potato famine. And the reason why is because I keep bringing this up. And I just, I want to get my facts straight because it was not a famine. It was not exactly a famine. It was 
a deliberate starvation of people. It wasn't because the crops failed. What's going on? We have Walter White down from New Zealand. We haven't seen him for a while. Walter, I hope you're well, buddy. How's, how are things down under in New Zealand? Okay, so it's saying here the Great Famine was caused by a failure of the potato crop, which many people relied on for most of their nutrition. A disease called late blight destroyed the leaves and edible roots of the potato plants in the successive years from 1845 to 1849. So that's four years. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. Um, it was a great, here we go. The Great Famine. Uh, yes, there was a blight, but it was the little... I can't find it. I can't find... Um, you know what? We're going to have to do a whole episode dedicated to this. Because this is not... Here, here. let's see what the truth... This is from Jerry Moville. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I just, I read this thing recently and it blew my mind. In 1845, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, which was the richest and most powerful nation in the world. Ireland was producing a surplus of food. However, between that, right, right. That's what it was. So other, so the other countries in the United Kingdom took the, the food and then they had nothing for themselves. It, so it wasn't about, it wasn't the blight that killed the Irish. It was that the food, there was no food for them to eat. They gave all the food to the United Kingdom. However, between 1845 and 1852, more than 1.5 million Irish people starved to death. Friggin' tragedy, man. With massive quantities of food, while massive quantities of food were being exported from their country to Britain. So the food existed. It just went to Britain, okay? A half a million people were evicted from their homes, often illegally and violently, during the potato blight. Another 1.5 million had no choice but to emigrate to foreign lands abroad uh, rot in rotting, overcrowded coffin ships. The famine left a scar so deep within the Irish people that it set in motion a war that would finally gain Irish, Ireland its independence from Britain in 1922. And then here's the question, ready? How could there be a famine in a land with a surplus food with surplus food? So so just to just to reiterate, there wasn't just food, there was a surplus of food. There was a surplus of food. And then another question is, how did Britain respond? What were th this is a book I'm reading for. I'm, I'm reading from uh that that sort of uh talks about this. Wow, that's really friggin' sad and I don't want to look at it. Looking at a terrible, terrible picture right here of um, a poor woman not having enough food for her or her family. Oh, well, you know what? Let's let's look at it real quick, real, real quick before we move on, because we're talking about it. And you know what? I'm I'm going to I'm just going to show this. I'm going to show this real quick just to just to drive the point home that I'm not just pulling this out of my butt or making, you know, trying to um, uh, misspeak on something that I'm not super well versed on. I just I, I had a shred. I had a shred of what I was talking about. But here it is. So this is what happened, man. This is what happened. Families are evicted. They they have a surplus of food. Look at this. Starving mothers and children, right? That's There's that. Um, let's see what else. This book is called The Truth Behind the Irish Famine. Oh, the pages are not loading. Okay, this is going swimmingly. Let's just get rid of it. Point being is that there was a surplus of food and it went to Britain instead of 
to the Irish who were farming it and everybody starved to death and it was absolutely terrible. Walter White says, I'm good made it's wet here. That's great. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Um, so 1850s, the Irish potato famine spikes popularity of Halloween. How about that? In the 1850s, the Irish potato famine prompted immigrants to flood into the United States. In addition to turnip carving, soon to be pumpkin carving, they brought many of the original Celtic Samhain traditions with them. The advent of Ireland's devastating potato famine bought, brought millions of Halloween-loving Irish immigrants over from across the Atlantic. Jack Breesford writes for the Irish Post. Americans soon began embracing the traditions of Halloween, latching onto the tricks and treats as a means of letting off steam one night of the year. And then pictured Snap Apple Night, painted by Irish artist Daniel McClyes in 1833. That's so cool, man. Look at that beautiful picture. What a beautiful, beautiful illustration. Oh, look at this. 1874, Camille St. Sains writes Dance Macabre. Ooh. In 1874, French composer, whose name I'm not going to say again because I wrote it, I mean, I butchered it, wrote a tone poem, a tone poem called Dance Macabre that takes place on Halloween. The ghoulish music, oh, yes, yes, yes. We all know this piece of music, okay? Um, the ghoulish music, which tells the story of the Grim Reaper waking at midnight to host a Halloween dance with skeletons has been called the purest Halloween music ever written. It's beautiful music. The classical masterpiece marks one of the finest pieces of music written for the holiday that persists today. I would agree. Uh, and just go on to YouTube and Google Dance Macabre. You'll know it in two seconds. Look at this. Look at these cute kids bobbing for apples. 1900 to 1920s, Halloween popularity drives mass-produced costumes. Uh, as the holiday continued to grow, so did the costume industry. Between the turn of the century and the 1920s, the first signs of Halloween as a commercial holiday began popping up as costumes became mass-produced. During this time, the Denison Paper Company created a large number of simple paper costumes. Everyone looked the same. Those were aprons with cats or little witches printed on them or hats or paper masks. Halloween expert Leslie Banatane told Insider they were meant to be worn once and then thrown away like crepe paper. This is the first time Halloween got a standard, a standard color scheme, which was yellow, black, orange, and purple with paper products. Look at that. Look at these trick-or-treaters, man. Oh, I love it. I love seeing it. 1911, the first documented trick-or-treating of North America. Trick-or-treating has be, ha, had been occurring in some form or another for centuries, but it hit North America in the early part of the 20th century. According to Davin Heisky, Hiskey of the website today, I found out the first documented case was in 1911. There are many theories about its origins. Some say it's linked to the Celts leaving food out for ghosts during Samhain. Remember, we were talking about the soul cakes, right? Others say it comes from the Scottish practice of guising or souling, where kids dressed as ghosts and were given gifts to help keep the spirits away. Awesome. Awesome. Archduke Ramon says, I used to make my own costumes. My best was being the headless horseman. 
Archduke, I live right next to Sleepy Hollow, and it's really it gets really cool here around uh, the fall. I mean, there's just so much celebration that goes on. Look at this. Look at this. This is this is this is a parade, a Halloween parade of some sorts. There's a black cat decoration, a, a giant pumpkin. And you know what's interesting too? It's like people doing these celebrations. I don't know how, how to word what I'm trying to say. It's like people taking time off of like what doing what you need to survive in life, like whether it's working or growing crops or whatever. And like having these like very interesting sort of like modern celebrations that are not utilitarian. They're there for just simply having fun. You know, even like celebrations in like ancient times, they were still utilitarian in the sense that like you're doing them because there's some sort of religious meaning behind them or something. And this is just simply all about having fun. In the 1920s and 30s, parades became incorporated into celebrations. Although it still wasn't mass marketed, Halloween had become fairly widespread throughout the United States by the 1920s and 1930s. Around this time, communities began organizing parades and large community-wide events. It was also around this time that vandalism started to occur during celebrations too. And the idea of mischief began to be associated with the holiday. Look at this. Here's some people carving out uh, this guy's in the army or something, it looks like. And they are carving out um, jack-o'-lanterns. 1939 to 1947, World War II temporarily halts Halloween. During World War II, Halloween took a hiatus for a few years. With soldiers dying overseas, people weren't in the mood for macabre celebrations. And when the sugar rations started, because people used to have to ration stuff. And my dear departed Nana, happy Mother's Day to you, Nana. Um, 92 years old she lived to be and i said nana she you know she survived the year 2020 um and i said to her nana on her last thanksgiving i said nana what's the hardest year you ever lived through you've been alive since 1928 like what's the craziest thing like what what um and she said right now with everything that's going on you know across the world people refusing you know to do what's necessary uh, for the good of everybody else, that sort of thing. And she said something funny. She's like, if what happened now in 2020, uh, if COVID happened uh, during World War II, or if World War II happened today, nobody would take part in the war effort. Nobody would ration sugar. Nobody would ration, uh, you know, uh, give up their tin. Nobody would ration gasoline. Everybody would not cooperate. And I thought that was very profound from someone who had lived through the Great Depression and World War II. It just kind of blew me away uh, to hear her perspective. And if you want to hear her talk about it, go to our last Tom Thanksgiving, last Thanksgiving episode. You can hear my Nana talk all about that. Actually, that was two years ago. Um, it, it was Thanksgiving 20, Thanksgiving 2020. Wow, because she died in uh, January of 2021. Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah, that was 2020. Um. So in any case, after the World War II sugar rations were lifted, oh, here. So, so however, when the war ended and the rationing was over, Halloween returned in spades. After World War II, sugar rations were lifted and Halloween's popularity saw a huge spike. And within five years, trick-or-treating was a near ubiquitous practice throughout North America. And you think about like the 1950s. I mean, there, you know, 
uh, uh, suburbia, you know, the suburban life truly develops the modern suburban life and Halloween must have, you know, exploded with that. Uh, the 1950s TV integrated pop culture into Halloween in the 1950s, as broadcast TV began soaring in popularity, Halloween became widely marketed and its images became more homogenized, meaning that like spread across a large area, all of the images became more consistent, right? Um, as in basically pop culture went from radio to television in the 1950s. And all of a sudden, everybody across the country is on the same page. Halloween expert, uh, Leslie, uh, Banatane explains to insider, you could, uh, you couldn't have standard Halloween costumes that everybody knew about until we had a common culture. Isn't that fascinating? the beginning of homogenized widespread pop culture, common culture really does begin with the radio and really with TV. Once TV is across the country, everybody, all of us, um, it's almost like TV unites America in that kind of way. Yes. Obviously every region has its own kind of like culture and history. As a matter of fact, if you, there's some dude, we'll, we'll explore it someday. There's, um, there's 11 distinct cultures in the United States. So if you wanted to divide up the country, if you wanted to divide up the United States into um, by culture, you would divide it into 11 different countries, basically. It's really, really, really interesting. Um, uh, Veridi Stahl says, Halloween started off in the early 20th century when people just wanting to have fun and blow off steam. Yes, we literally just said that uh, about 10 minutes ago. Um <laughs> Uh, and then I remember in the late 1980s when some tried to vilify it as some kind of evil satanic holiday. Yeah, man, you know, we had an article. Ah, it's over here, but we're already at an hour into this thing. I don't know if we can hit it. We'll try. We'll hit it. We'll, we'll, we'll graze over it. In any case, now you have a common culture. Common costumes included figures like Little Orphan Annie, Peter Pan, Donald Duck, and Snow White. And this is in, this is the 1950s. Then you have music. 1962, uh, Bobby Boris Pickett releases the Monster Mash. They did the Mash and the Crypt Kick, the Crypt Kickers. They did the Monster Mash. It was a smash. It was a graveyard smash. But even before then, you had Screaming Jay Hawkins. Um, in 1962, a singer named Bobby Boris Pickett released a Halloween-themed novelty song called Monster Mash. That unexpected, the unexpected hit was hugely popular. And on October 30th that year, the album topped the charts, charts as the number one record in the country, selling a million copies. Today, it remains one of the most popular Halloween songs in history. And man, I would love to have a first pressing of that seven inch of that single. That would be really cool. Look at this. I love this with these pails and kids. Oh, it's so great. 1950s through 1970s. Candy becomes the treat of choice. We don't think about it like that, but it's really true. Uh, before the 1950s, kids were trick-or-treating regularly, but it wasn't always candy that went into their goodie bags. According to Mental Floss, things like toys, money, and fruit were also common treats. 
However, around this time, candy manufacturers recognized the opportunity and began marketing tiny sized candy bars specifically for Halloween. In the 1970s, fear over poisoning further cemented the role of wrapped candy as the treat of choice. And we're going to talk about that. That's what uh, Stahl was just mentioning. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment because I have another little piece here that uh, that that talks about that. So there you go. There's your your fun size. We call it fun size candy, right? 1974, the poisoned candy mythology spreads after boy's death in Texas. So there's a specific incident that begins this tradition of checking candy and needing safety hollow, uh, on Halloween. And of course, we have the, the Misfits song written by Glenn Danzig because we couldn't bring up Halloween without bringing up the Misfits. You know, uh, candy apples and razor blades, little dead or soon in graves. I remember on Halloween this day, anything goes. Burning bodies hanging from poles. Uh, talk about the modern. That's the modern. Uh, that's the modern Halloween poem. Right. Based, remember, we were reading that other one that I couldn't pronounce. That's the modern version. OK, so what happened with the poison candy mythology in 1974? A Texan named Ronald Clark O'Brien fatally poisoned his eight year old son by lacing Halloween candy with cyanide. That is absolutely insane. He also handed out poison candy to a few other neighborhood children, though none died. That is terrible. Um, the case prompted widespread fear about poison candy, understandably so, from strangers, even though experts say it's never actually been a problem. I can't find any evidence that any child has ever been injured by a contaminated treat picked up on Halloween. University of Del Delaware criminologist Joel Best told The Independent, I can't say for certain that it hasn't happened because it's impossible to prove a negative. But it seems to be an urban myth. Now, what's here's what's really interesting. Here's what's here's what's really interesting about that. Um, you you have you have this like you have this thing that actually kind of ties back to Halloween three season of the witch, in which um, this the Silver Shamrock Corporation is giving kids masks and it's doing it because um, part of the Samhain tradition was sacrifices and it wasn't just any kind of sacrifices. It was child sacrifice, at least to an extent. I don't know what the extent was. We've I've definitely read about that in the past. I don't know how much of it is true, but it's very interesting to pull the parallels, the idea of like this guy poisoning candy and handing it out to, to, to children uh, than the other way around uh, Archduke Ramon says, I remember taking my Halloween candy to the airport to be checked with the X-ray machine. That's insane. More for razor blades than poison. Wow. And if you've seen the, the, the movie Creep Show, uh, of course, there is, uh, you look at the wraparound segment, also featuring Tom Atkins from, uh, from uh, 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 Season of the Witch. Um, yes, we, we did. Um, we did have, uh, we talked all about this. Halloween has its roots with Irish immigrants and, well, okay. I don't know if you can, I guess you can call it ironic there. That's the only parallel you can draw from that is that it's ironic. Um, 1978, the first Halloween movie is released and costumes turn gory. Halloween costumes took a major turn to the macabre in the late seventies and early 1980s. After the release of the first Halloween movie in 1978, directed by John Carpenter, starring, 
um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Before that, costumes had been scary, but not gruesome. It was always spooky. It was always otherworldly and weird, but it wasn't bloody and violent until John Carpenter's Halloween cracked it open. Halloween expert Leslie Banatain told Insider. Interesting. 2000s Halloween costumes become sexy. If the 1980s was a time for gory Halloween costumes, then in the new the new millennium was the time for sexy costumes. Rather than dress up as a bloody serial killer from a slasher film, people went out as sexy witches and nurses. In the in the 80s and 90s, people would always ask me, "Why is Halloween so violent?" Nowadays, they ask, "Why is Halloween so sexy?" Um, that's that same insider look at this that's the that's the indian goddess uh shiva i think right with the eight arms and whatnot 2010s cultural appropriation debate over costumes begins going wow we were just isn't it okay this is a true sense of irony we were just talking about how most things are not cultural appropriation and then we see this giant backlash in the 2010s about cultural appropriation with Halloween costumes. In the past five to 10 years, awareness has increased about culturally insensitive, uh, sorry, about culturally sensitive Halloween costumes. And there's been increased media attention around issues of cultural appropriation. Celebrities who have been criticized for their costumes include Nikki Hilton, who dressed as Pocahontas, Heidi Klum, who went as the Hindu goddess Kali. That's who she is right there. Uh, and uh, Julianne Ho, who donned blackface to be crazy eyes from Orange is the New Black. Yikes. <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole, man. With a 10-foot pole. Um, present day, Americans spend $9 billion on Halloween. Today, Halloween has become a thoroughly commercial affair. Last year, Americans spent almost $9 billion on the holiday, according to the National Retail Federation. Of that, around $2.6 billion went to candy. Uh, $2.7 billion went to decorations, and $3.2 billion went to costumes. Spending is expected to decrease somewhat because of C-19 uh, to $805 billion, down from $878 billion in, in, in uh, 2019. That was a wonderful timeline, truly. I really want to thank the author for putting this together in, in such an organized and concise way with images. That was Rachel Cavanaugh. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that. I, I really enjoyed that. And then let's follow it up. We're going to graze this one because I feel like a lot of it is uh, redundant from what we just discussed. Uh, hold on. My system is correcting. Here we go. This is interesting. This is probably quite a bit of overlap. So we're just, we're not, we'll, we'll, we'll skip around as necessary. Um, this is called how Halloween has changed in the past 100 years, because I think Halloween has really, you know, greatly, greatly changed over, over the last decade on the 20th century, you know, transformed Halloween into taking all of the stuff before and then exploding it with commercialism and, you know, uh, talking about homogenizing uh, the pop culture across the entire nation of 330 million people. But before we do that, I want to take another commercial break to let you know that I make T-shirts and you can buy them. And when you buy them, it really supports this channel. I do a lot of uh, I, I do a lot of punk T-shirts, like punk themed T-shirts around pizza uh, and other things, too. So check that out. 
another little sponsored break here right now. And the links for these t-shirts are down below in the description. So if you're interested in any of these t-shirts and it's not just t-shirts, it's hoodies, sweatshirts, uh, beer cozies, the whole, whole, even aprons, masks, all that stuff. T-shirt All right, and the uh, those T-shirts, the links for those T-shirts are in the description below. Okay, this is also from Stacker, and this is by Britt McGinnis. How Halloween has changed in the past 100 years, right? Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, is a holiday that has come to be celebrated by people dressing up in all manner of costumes, carving pumpkins, and satiating sugar cravings. But the holiday also represents the start of the new year for Wiccans who believe it to be the time of year when boundaries between the real and supernatural worlds uh, are the thinnest. For this reason, uh, Halloween is also believed to be the most potent time for fortune-telling and making significant prophecies about the coming future. Halloween has changed drastically since its druidic origins in Ireland, the original home of this mystical holiday. How people celebrate Halloween has shifted according to technology, the size of cities, and attitudes about celebrating a holiday as a community, because that's what it's really all about. Um, The origin of Halloween was religious, a day designated by ancient Irish for celebrating and communicating with visiting spirits. It changed shape when Catholic and Christian churches attempted to convert those people to their faiths. And we just went through that meticulously in the, uh, whatchamacallit in the, in the timeline, uh, it, uh, modern celebrations of Halloween have incorporated aspects of these and other traditions. It's now a day of lighting candles in pumpkins and turnips to keep the ghosts away, but also perhaps gathering treats for, from, decorated cars in a church parking lot that's the trunk or treat trunk or treat um tradition uh, a child would be more likely to mention a talking skeleton than a sacred bonfire when discussing the origin of halloween uh stacker has compiled a list of ways that halloween has changed over the last 100 years from how we celebrate it on a on on the day to the costumes we wear at trick or treating we've included events inventions and trends that change the way that that changed the ways that Halloween was celebrated over time. Many of these traditions were phased out over time, but just like fake blood in a carpet, every bit of Halloween's history left an impression and we can see traces of it today. Uh, Jody Ramon loves the Halloween sour cream shirt and Walter White likes the brat, the bad brain style destroy. It's not just destroy. It's destroy pizza, destroy pizza. 
you notice there's a pizza box on there. That's what's all instead of destroy Babylon, it's destroy pizza. <laughs> okay, so first thing off, celebrations close to the earth. Halloween gained popularity in the United States in the 1840s by way of a massive Irish immigration. We talked about that over the famine. The pagan roots of the celebration may be what led it to being popular with farm communities and people looking to connect with the land as the seasons turned because it's the time of the harvest. Natural elements often showed up in costumes around this time. Uh, pranks leading the way. In past generations, Halloween was integrated closely with mischief, namely pranks. Throwing cabbages and stealing garden gates were among the most popular shenanigans. Nowadays, well-known pranks like egging houses or hanging toilet paper from tree branches can result in hefty fines. And of course, we there's also what's known as mischief night or devil's night, right? Um, yes, it's going to happen. Rest in pizza is the next shirt. And I have to give 50% of the proceeds to uh, DLW. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, rise in Halloween parties. As Halloween gained popularity stateside, unique methods of celebration began cropping up. Uh, parties by the 1930s were standard fare in Halloween festi festivities. And by the 1950s, Halloween parties were mostly held at homes instead of in downtown centers, a byproduct of the baby boom at the time and the holiday becoming increasingly focused around children. Uh, here we go. Some of these pictures are the same. Transition from homemade to store-bought treats. If you were trick-or-treating in the 1940s or before, you were likely to receive a popcorn ball, nuts, fruits, or money. Manufactured and pre-wrapped candy didn't fully take off in the United States until the 1970s. Why? Parents were worried about the potential tampering of handmade treats. And of course, every video, you know, every safety video talks about that decline in fortune telling Halloween's origins run deep in superstition with fortune telling starting traditions like bobbing for apples often. And we, we, we discussed what the origin of the bobbing of apples was, which blew my mind. I did not know that that's where it came from. Oftentimes predicting the future included rituals to reveal the name of a person's future spouse. Today, you are more likely to find your fortune in a loaf of uh, barmbrack, which is traditional Halloween Irish bread. What? Than in, in a game at a Halloween party. That's interesting. I didn't know there was Irish Halloween bread. The introduction of Halloween's favorite pumpkin. Uh, Irish immigrants who introduced Halloween to America chose to carve pumpkins instead of their traditional turnips. Echoing the legend of a cursed man who navigated his way with a light in a turnip. It wasn't until the 1960s that America would see the Howden pumpkin, a pumpkin bread, especially for Halloween carving. I did not know that. There is a pumpkin that's bred especially for Halloween carving. It's shallow flesh and sturdy stem make, make it perfect for carving, but not ideal for eating. Hmm. Ah, how about that? Uh, the secular, the secularization of Halloween. What does secularize mean? It means to take, you take the religious stuff out of it. Halloween was originally a religious holiday for Druids and it's still celebrated as such by Wiccans. The surrounding days were also claimed as Catholic holidays that were moved from May. Remember we, we talked about that around, uh, 16, uh, sorry, 600 something by one of the popes. Um, and they sent those, ho those holidays centered around honoring the dead. Uh, but pushes in America to take away evil elements of Halloween made the holiday more about candy 
than about uh, evil spirits, right? Um, <laughs> always deciphering the lyrics. DLW is deciphering Halloween by by Glenn Danzig, the Misfits. Halloween equals Halloween, meaning you have a hollow wiener, infertility, litter, little dead or sooning graves because his boys can't swim. Wow. That is that that is heavy right there. <laughs> um daggers waiting on the summer of his oh I love it. I love it. That's um oh my god, what is that? Soul on fire. Soul on fire. Okay, so the rise of Halloween music. 1962 was the year of Monster Mash. We already talked about that. They sold a million copies. And uh, it's about a spontaneous party in a mad scientist lab. Misfits covered it. The resurgence in Halloween parties vaulted the popularity of the song, songs like Haunted House and the often covered I Put a Spell on You by Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who we love here on the channel. One of the most uh, uh, heavily covered songs. Increased Halloween spending, uh, the days of paper and crepe costumes and homemade treats are largely behind us. So it's like it's it used to be a holiday that was exclusively about crafting. And now Americans are projected to spend more than $10.14 billion on this year's holiday. The first time the country has crested over 10 billion, according to the National Retail Federation's annual survey. Hmm. Um, oh, boy. There's a lot here. Rise of manufactured costumes until the 1920s. Most Halloween costumes were handmade by the costume wearer and their family. This changed in the 1920s with the advent of manufactured costumes from companies like Ben Cooper, Collegeville Flag and Manufacturing Company, and H. Halpern Company. Ben Cooper, in particular, gained Halloween popularity through the production of officially licensed costumes of popular characters. Right, because then all of a sudden people are licensing characters for Halloween costumes. Uh, the decline of soul cakes. We talked about that. That's a that's a pagan um, Samhain druid tradition. The signature offerings for Halloween before candy were homemade soul cakes. They were tied closely to the Catholic roots of Halloween and before that, uh, Samhain, and were symbolically given in exchange for prayers. These days, soul cakes are few and far between, although they're still baked on Halloween in certain parts of Europe. Maybe I had that wrong. Maybe that was the Catholic. That was a Catholic thing only. Increased trick-or-treating safety concerns. In 1982, a rash of poisoning deaths were tied to Tylenol pill bottles suspected of post-manufacturing tampering. The case was never solved, which inspired a wave of fear around trick-or-treating to the point where some towns in America banned it completely. Parents have since worried about razor blade cyanide and now cannabis is the newest one with edible, you know, with edibles uh, loaded with THC. Uh, people are worried that edibles are going to wind up in, in Halloween trick or treating uh, in Halloween candy, though most incidents of tampering uh, of tampered candy are reported hoaxes. Isn't that amazing that we've had Halloween for nearly a hundred years and, you know, billions and billions of trick or treat transactions have gone down and there's just never like, it's not a thing because people love this holiday and they treat it with, uh, they venerate, they venerate it. You know, they love it and they respect it and they, nobody wants to pollute it in that kind of way. I think that's pretty sweet. Um, Archduke Ramon says that they celebrate Samhain spiritually 
and also the fun aspects of it. Uh, it's part of the wheel of the year, a pagan concept, right? Because you have the, di- the different solstices, right? Um, if you have not already said so, I did not say that. So I did not thank you for contributing that to the conversation, the wheel of the year. Very cool. Um, rise of latex masks, uh, through the 1950s and 1960s, plastic masks with elastic bands were the norm for Halloween. They were cheap to produce and could resemble any character a child wanted to be. The game changed when vacuum formed latex masks came onto the market. Uh, the rise of trunk or treating. I don't know what the origination was, but you, in general, that's very popular with schools and churches. Emerging in the 1990s, trunk or treat events emerged as a safer alternative to trick or treating. Children gather candy from open trunks of cars parked together in a designated parking lot. The practice can inspire creative car decorations and has been nicknamed Halloween tailgating. See, it's not amazing like how new traditions form out of like old, old, like, things i think it's really really cool um well stall is asking here veretta stall is asking about the connection made between the halloween 2 and the word sam handwritten in blood all i can tell you about that is i suspect and i asked damien from the guitarist of this band sam hain i asked him i said you know that movie came out in 1981 and i think that was glenn danzig's introduction to sam hain i think that he saw that in that movie and thought it was a really cool thing and started reading about it. And that's what led to calling his next band, Sam Hain, or at least being inspired in some way, shape or form. Um, and no one's been able to verify that for me, but I, I, that's just what my, my intuition tells me. Um, <laughs> see, this is exactly Jody says, I ain't wasting my money on giving children my edibles. That's the that's the argument. No one's gonna no one's gonna like sit there and like like waste all that money. You know, edibles are expensive, man. And like, you know, no, they're gonna keep it for themselves. Why would they want to poi? Why would you want to dose a kid with with a high dose of THC? You know, I just I just always think that's kind of hilarious. Um, so, but that's interesting. I did not know that about uh, trunk or treating. So it's meant to be a safer form of trick or treating. The rise of haunted houses. Uh, the first haunted house opened to the public in 1950, but their Halloween heyday arrived during the Great Depression. People built primitive haunted houses that wound through basements and spooked local children. They were a great attraction for local children and a great alternative to destructive pranks. Very cool. Um, we live on a dead end and we've often talked about doing a haunted dead end. Uh, it just has not happened yet. Fake blood becomes a costume option. The hyper-realistic fake blood we think of from movies like The Shining came about in the 1960s, invented by pharmacist John Tingate. Nicknamed Kensington Gore, it launched reformulations of fake blood that would appease audiences of horror movies in color. Today, most fake blood, including the kind that you might buy from the Halloween store, is made with corn syrup. And we we know all about that. If you've watched Scream and you hear Billy Loomis and he says corn syrup, just like what they use for pig's blood and carry um, <laughs> trick or treating stops and is revived. Uh, thanks to sugar rationing in America, Halloween candy all but disappeared during World War Two. Communities celebrated the holiday how they could. But after the war, cartoons like Peanuts reintroduced the idea of trick or treating to American children. We, we covered that already. Uh, yes, trick or treating for trick or treat for UNICEF. 
uh, emergence of Halloween charities. Charity balls are an elegant Halloween event in many regions of the United States. UNICEF introduced the trick-or-treat for UNICEF program in 1950 to promote their message of children helping children on a more local level and provide a candy-free activity for children. Spirit Halloween stores uh, initiated the Spirit of Children charity for children's hospitals in 2006. Um, costume restrictions in public schools. The 2010s saw an uptick in schools banning students from wearing certain costumes to school, often on the basis of sensitivity or the separation of church and state, which I think is friggin' hilarious considering what's happening currently politically right now. And I'll keep my mouth shut about that. But um, boy, we love to brag about the separation of church and state, but it doesn't really exist, does it? 2016's creepy clown sightings led to schools across America to bar students from dressing as clowns for Halloween. The rise of the Halloween-themed TV special, yes. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, and this is like the bright side of the commercialization of Halloween, that you get you know, TV-themed Halloween specials, which really make us feel... The holiday, whether it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, uh, which debuted in uh, 1966, when it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown debuted in 1966, the broadcasters probably had no idea that they were starting a trend. The tradition has continued with annual airings of Hocus Pocus and Halloween Town by television networks. The Simpsons made a name for itself with the annual Treehouse of Horror Halloween specials, which to me is just like such a, 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 a time-honored tradition, not just of the Halloween specials, but especially of Treehouses of Horror. Uh, Grinch Night is another one. And of course, um, Disney's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which I watch every single year. Uh, it's something I do with my children, uh, really helps usher in the holiday as well as the nightmare before Christmas, which might be the ultimate Halloween movie that is watched. We probably watched, um, my, my, my daughter really got into hollow, uh, nightmare before Christmas. She was calling it, um, uh, nightberry before Christmas for a while. Cute little thing. Uh, but she must've watched it a hundred times. I actually, for her birthday, I bought her a Jack Skellington plush toy because she just is obsessed with that movie right now. Um, let's see here. Let's yes, I agree. Life would, wouldn't be the same without Simpsons specials, uh, adult costumes, Dressing up as a salacious version of a cat, a ketchup bottle, or even Mr. Rogers feels like a very modern shift. Uh, the tradition actually began in the 1970s with the LGBTQ plus community in New York City. Greenwich Village's annual Halloween parade, which is, a I used to go to it. I used to go to it uh, several years in a row. I went to the, the annual Halloween parade, um, was apparently the birthplace of that tradition. It's a wonderful parade. Uh, where it then went on to be absorbed by the general Halloween culture. Uh, the rise of Halloween theme parks. Knott's Berry Farm in 1973 decorated the theme park for temporary Halloween events and experiences Knott's Scary Farm would go on to inspire other seasonal theme park events. Six Flags put on Fright Fest annually and Disneyland decorates the Haunted Mansion every year in true Halloween fashion higher participation in candy distribu distribution. Uh, people may remember houses in their neighborhoods growing up 
that didn't celebrate Halloween opting to shut off out outside lights to signal that the treats would be found elsewhere and also get their house egged. But those houses have become rare with time. In 2020, the National Retail Federation pro- projects that 62% of American pre- uh, consumers plan to hand out candy. That's a lot of people. That's over 150 million people. That's like Wait a minute. Let me think about that for a second. That is at a, uh, that's like 180 million people or more, man. That's crazy. Increase in dressing up pets. Why not let Fido and Fluffy join in on the Halloween fun? Dressing up pets in costumes may date back to 320 BC in China, but doing so for Halloween has not only become more popular, has only become more popular with time. Americans spend half a billion dollars to dress their pets up in Halloween costumes, according to the Canine Journal, and a 20% of pet owners are planning on dressing their furry friends up in 2021 an increase from 18% in 2020. The Nightmare Before Christmas rewrites Halloween origins. The release of The Nightmare Before Christmas in 1993 introduced a new reason behind the season. No longer was this a holiday celebrated, uh, celebrating fall and treats, the religious meanings long out of favor. Children grow up, growing up in the 1990s now thought of Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King, initiating Halloween every year from Halloween Town. I don't know about that. I think I don't. I don't know about that. Uh, banning Halloween from public schools. Boo. Uh, the late 2010 saw a wave of schools outright banning Halloween costumes and celebrations from school grounds, sometimes opting for harvest celebrations instead. What? How bunk is that? The most frequent reasons for the bans were safety and the fear of scaring children or general exclusivity. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Uh, the resurgence of homemade costumes. Homemade costumes have seen a recent resurgence in popularity. Likely thanks to the growing interest of Pinterest, uh, revelry, and niche communities centered around crafting. I would also imagine cosplaying comes into play, right? Co- comes Becomes a factor. Social media and popular parenting blogs may also be a contributing factor. Uh, the push for politically correct costumes. The conversation around Halloween has shifted in recent years to costumes that did not offend. Uh, schools have instituted guidelines and warnings to students from some social commenters claim that the holiday has become too political. Uh, increased awareness in Dia de los Muertos. Again, I would, uh, you know, there's, pro- there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, here it says, oh, it says it right here, actually. Uh, perhaps thanks to the growing Hispanic population in the United States and films like Coco and the Book of Life, there's been a rising awareness of the Mexican holiday of Dia de los Muertos taking place on November 1st and November 2nd every year. This festival honoring... Uh, deceased loved ones is often celebrated in tandem with Halloween. And what they do is they're also, you know, you, you bring food to the graveyard and it's a way that you commune with your ancestors. And as long as your ancestors remember you or have a picture of you, you're not forgotten. It's a, it's a beautiful tradition. I think um, the rise of superhero costumes. Yes. The national retail federation reported in 2019 that for the first time in 16 years, superheroes beat out princesses for the most desired children's halloween costume this year the foundation projects the most popular costume to be spider-man with more than 1.8 million children donning spidey suits 
1.6 million will go as a princess. Another 1.2 million are planning to go as Batman. I'd imagine with um, uh, No Way Home, the, the recent Spider-Man movie, that we are going to see a lot of Spider-Man this uh, this fall, this winter. Sorry, this fall. Um, that kind of brings us to the end of our show. There, you know, I had one other thing here, which is when Halloween was all. Man, I really. We kind of covered everything, man. We I'm looking through it right now. It's it's a cool article, but you know what happens when you just when when you go on and on and on with the same stuff and the information gets so redundant. I think these two stacker articles really encapsulate what we wanted to sort of um say about everything. What's up, Biz? Biz is in the house. Biz, we haven't seen you for a while. Hope you're well. And um, how come Sam Hain is pronounced so strange? Uh, nothing really points at the same pronunciation as the word Halloween. I don't know. Um, we covered that already. Uh, if you had come earlier during the show, make sure to subscribe and have your notifications turned on and you can engage in the conversation. Um, but if you want that question answered, go back and watch the beginning and you will find out. I hope everybody enjoyed tonight's show. And I may be back tomorrow, um, a week from Tuesday, the Lee Ving uh, episode of Pizza Punk from Fear, the, the, lead, the you know, front man of fear. Uh, that is going to drop publicly. If you want to watch it now, subscribe to the Patreon or become a YouTube member and you can watch it immediately and you don't have to wait. Um, Patreon's really important here, especially as of recent, recent times. So consider, you know, um, buying a coffee or buying a t-shirt or, uh, subscribing to the Patreon, uh, to support this channel and the creation of this content. Uh, thank you all for watching. I really, really appreciate it. And let me tell you a little bit more about the Patreon peace and hair grease. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk, and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now, I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers, and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. <laughs> 
The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.